And amen. Thank you, worship team. Uh, children, you are now dismissed. And as you're finding your seat, please so say hello to the person next to you. Welcome them to service. All right. I just want to remind you the the for Resi, uh, the um, the visitation is next door at Bowser Minick from four to eight p.m. and the service is here at Thursday, eleven a.m. on Thursday at eleven a.m. So, well, uh, today we are going to be digging into a very mature topic. Uh, we are talking about wrestling with homosexuality. Uh, this is something that we see all around our culture. Things are loud. Things uh, are, are hard to understand, hard to, to realize. How do we wrestle with this as believers? So let's pray, and then we will dig into the word of the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. When we come to the word of God, many times we need to slow down. We need to understand and go deeply into your word. I pray that this morning we will do that. As we open up your word, I pray, God, that you will speak deeply to our hearts. As we speak deeply to culture. As we speak deeply to issues that impact our lives and our world. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will fall fresh upon us and upon me that we will hear your truth, that I will proclaim your truth, and that we will become someone new as we engage the word of God, not just learning something new. In your name, amen. Amen. I mean, as you could tell, this is a, a bit of a heavier, weightier sermon because culture is all-encompassing with this issue. When uh, Joseph, a, uh, a good friend of mine and a co-worker, a colleague in ministry, when he and I planted the church at the University of Pittsburgh, one of the things that consistently came up in our lives was this issue. When we would spend time with young adults, college students, uh, engaging in discussion, having conversations in coffee shops, the very first question as we said, hey, we are planting a church and we are engaging with the University of Pittsburgh and we love for people to experience Jesus. The very first question that we received year in and year out, day in and day out, was what is your stance on homosexuality? It was one of the very first questions that they asked. And, you know, we were prepared somewhat for that question, but the constant barrage of questioning caused Joseph and I to go deeper into prayer, deeper into the Word of God, so that we would have proper engagement with this issue. Early on in the church plant, we had a young man named David who came into our doors. It was probably the first year, maybe even the first six months of the church plant. And he knew we were a church. He came into one of our evening events, and he shared with us his story. He was a young man who struggled with homosexuality. 
And by the time he was in college, he was practicing this lifestyle. And so he talked with Joseph and I and asked the question, obviously, of what are your thoughts on homosexuality? We talked to him about Scripture, and, and we shared with him the truths of what Scripture says, with which I will share much of that with you this morning. But he shared with us a painful story of when he was about 16, he approached his youth pastor at a very conservative church, and he said to him, I'm, I'm tempted in this way. He simply said, I have not yet engaged this lifestyle. I've been tempted to live the homosexual lifestyle. In that moment, the youth pastor said, you're no longer welcome into our church. You're no longer welcome into our youth ministry. His parents ostracized him until he was 18 to move and, and engage in college. And it, it broke our hearts to hear this story because it was one of those where it wasn't a proper engagement. It wasn't a proper wrestling with this topic of homosexuality. And we'll engage with that, the, the passages of Scripture that deal with this issue this morning. But when we come to this issue, we must walk in grace, but also uphold truth. We must walk in grace, but also uphold truth. We cannot allow grace to limit us from speaking truth. And we cannot allow the force of truth to hinder us from offering grace. For each and every one of us in this room have received both grace and truth. If you are a believer in Christ, you have experienced the grace of Christ because you were forced to look at the truth of Christ. And so as we deal with this issue, the underlining idea I want us to have is the idea of grace and truth. Homosexuality is an issue that we deal with on an everyday basis in our current culture. The pride culture has become louder and louder and louder within our world, in American society. And so it's not something that we can ignore or not talk about. When we do exegetical preaching and teaching through a book of Scripture, it forces us to deal with all the issues that Scripture brings forward. Some pastors, some preachers, some teachers might be tempted to just skip over this and move into the next portion of Scripture, but we, we cannot do that. We would be in the wrong to skip an issue that we all need to deal with. And as you can tell, we all are feeling the weight of this issue right now as we are wrestling with it in this month, in our current life, in our current world. But we must walk in grace, but also uphold truth. So if we're dealing with this issue, how do we wrestle properly with it? One of the things I'm going to say and explain through Scripture is that we can't fight fire with fire. We cannot fight the world with worldly actions or worldly responses. We have to be spirit-led, spirit-directed people. And as we unpack Scripture, we will look at how can we properly wrestle with homosexuality. So we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, which continues on into the series that we've been in in 1 Corinthians. But we also need to deal with two other very important New Testament passages, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11, and then Romans 1, 26 through 27. And so I will read those passages as one big chunk for us so that we can have a working knowledge of what I'm going to be talking about. And you can refer back to those passages as I refer back to them as well. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And now Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. As we can see in these passages, the issue of homosexuality is mentioned among other things. The first thing that we must do and, and put into practice in our lives as we are going to properly wrestle with this issue is that we must realize homosexuality or homosexual practice is not the unpardonable sin, nor is it the only sin. Within this passage, we remember that Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about these judges that the believers are putting one another before. If you remember last week, we talked about this division that was going on within the church, and this is in the context of what we talked about last week. Normally, you would preach this context within the context, but I felt it important to separate it out to deal with just the issue of wrestling with homosexuality. But here, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, listen, you are bringing one another before unrighteous judges. These judges that you are putting each other before don't understand justice. They don't understand righteousness, and you're dragging one another into court with people who cannot give proper justice. Remember, we talked about the disparity of wealth versus the impoverished. And these judges were very wealthy men who were in power. And so they could be bribed easily. Their friends who were also part of the elite culture, they could be bribed and convinced to give their friends and those who are wealthier the benefit of the doubt and ignore those who were poor. And so there was no justice in the courts, in the reality of truth. And when believers came through, they had to recognize and know in their culture there was no justice in their justice system. It was corrupt. Not one single man on those seats was one who would be uncorrupted. And so we also see this in our own world, that we see corruption within all of these different layers of the judicial system, the political system, whatever it may be. And he's saying you will not find justice there. 
And we see this, this as a list of sins where home, practicing homosexuality appears to be there. And so we must wrestle with what does that mean? And, and one of the things that we must see is that is, it is a sin among other sins. In fact, here we are seeing that Paul is, is urging the believers to recognize that pulling one another into court is defrauding the name of Christ and defrauding their brother and sister, putting their sin at the same level of the unrighteous judges that he's talking about. One commentator says the people of God frequently have trouble recognizing that injustice is as serious a sin as incest and other sexual misconduct and that it warrants the very same punishment. He talks about liars in this passage. He talks about thieves. And in fact, what they were doing was thieving from one another by going to an unrighteous, unjust system rather than dealing with it together. And so here Paul in this context is urging them to understand that those judges who are in those areas of sin, you are sinning in a very similar level manner with how you're treating your brother or your sister when it goes, comes to sending them to an unrighteous judge, trying to get your own way because the Lord's way is not the way that you want it to be. It's the same attitude that these judges would have with their own unrighteousness. When we seek to wrestle with this one aspect of sin in the world, when we see this issue of homosexuality and all that surrounds and encompasses it, we often want to point to it as the most egregious, most grievous, most horrible thing that could happen in humanity. But when we do that, we neglect and forget our own sin because we need to remember all sin is sin and all sin leads to death romans 3:23 we know that for the wages of sin is death not one sin or some sin but all sin and all sin is sin whether you were to tell a white lie in your life somewhere and that's the only sin that you committed in your life or you were to be an adulterer or a thief or a deceiver or someone who practices homosexuality, that white lie sin brings the same death as the other sins that we just mentioned. And that's why Paul brings about this issue as a list, not just one thing. All sin is sin. And all sin leads to death. To point to one issue in our culture and ignore the rest, or to point out one sense of sin or area of sin and to ignore the rest, is the epitome of hypocrisy. Because we're not dealing with the whole of sin. And there are sins that we often in our church culture ignore. We don't talk about them. We don't wrestle with them. We don't deal with them. But the sins that we don't wrestle with, we often are the loudest about because they don't affect our lives. We don't struggle with it. We like to be loud and point the fingers about things that we don't wrestle with. And that doesn't have to deal with just the issue of homosexuality. It deals with all the other sins that we know we don't wrestle with. We like to be loud about. But as we saw before, when we point our fingers, there's three more pointing back at us, and we have to seek to be right with the Lord first and foremost. 
And we have to find a way to wrestle in the public sphere better than we have on this issue of homosexuality. Within these passages, we also need to note the word practice that precedes the word homosexuality. Hermeneutically speaking, when you study the word of God, the, all of the words that show up are important and lead us to understanding of what Paul is talking about. We are to remember being tempted to sin is not the same as practicing sin. Being tempted to sin is not the same as practicing sin. Paul, in each of these lists, gives verbs. Verbs have action. Verbs have this sense of, I'm going to do it. I'm going to step in and, and have practice of this issue. If you're tempted to get drunk and you don't get drunk, have you sinned? If you're tempted to do, to steal something, yet you've not stolen something, have you sinned? Now, you're very close if you don't capture your thoughts to the edge of sin. Am I right? Because if you continue to dwell upon something and you continue to secretly wrestle with the temptation and you don't bring it into the light, it will become easier and easier and easier to then step over and practice that sin. But Paul very specifically uses the word practicing. And we see that in this aspect. What happened with th this young man, David, is that he wasn't even given the opportunity to sin before he was cast out. He simply shared that I was, he was tempted to do something. And rather than walk alongside this young man, he was pushed away, shoved out, and ostracized. If, if, we came, if someone came to me and said, I'm tempted to get drunk, I would not say, get out of the church. Neither would you. So why is it that with this one aspect of sin, because we have to name it what it is. We do. Why is it with this one aspect of sin do we treat those who struggle with it, those who are tempted to sin in this way, why do we treat them differently? What I've understood from David's story is that when someone shares this aspect of temptation but yet is not practicing, it actually helps them to go live into that lifestyle. It was certainly true for David. Because as soon as he was shunned and ostracized and shoved out of his community of believers who could help walk with him in this, he said, well, I might as well just go all in. I might as well just go all in. And so he did. My friends, we have to find a different response. We have to wrestle with this issue, but we have to find a different response. How do we respond to this? And we must also understand what practicing sin means outside of the idea of homosexuality. To practice sin means to continue down the same sinful path unashamedly and unrepentantly. Sometimes you and I, we might slip and, and sin by lying. Those of us who are believers, we are saints who sin. And so we end up still walking in our flesh from time to time. 
But if we are walking in a sin unrepentantly, unashamedly, just continuously doing it, feeling no conviction and no guilt, that is practicing sin. When you and I sin, we must immediately repent, feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and if necessary, when we're continuously tempted to sin in the same manner, we must bring along our brothers and sisters to hold us accountable, to help us to live a holier life. Amen? When someone comes to you and says they are tempted, no matter what sin it may be, seek to walk alongside them, to love them, to guide them, to hold them accountable, yes, but to offer grace and love and truth. We cannot separate grace from truth. Too often, as I mentioned, we've seen this, where we're overly gracious and we lack truth, or we're overly truthful and we lack grace. This is a tough balance, my friends. It is way easier to fall on one of the edges It's way easier to say, I'm just going to be gracious, all accepting, never going to call you out on your sin, despite what it may be. Just just live your life, go do you. It's really easy to do that. Because then you don't have any conflict. You don't have any butting of heads. It's just what it is. But we also have the same issue when we just have truth and we don't offer any grace and we just push people away because of their sin. I am so grateful that God does not do that to me. Aren't you? We need to be people of both grace and truth, holding one another accountable, but in love. Another key factor with this issue of wrestling with homosexuality is the idea of knowing. We are to know the word, examine the word, and study the word. We live in the most biblically illiterate Christian culture to ever exist. But we have access to the Bible more than any other generation. I mean, you could pull out your phone, download a bajillion different Bible apps, and you can have the entire Bible for free on your phone, on your iPad, on your computer. You can go to a bookstore. Ollie's sells Bibles. I mean, Ollie's. They don't have a whole lot of good stuff, but that's a pretty good thing. The Bible we have access to, but we don't take advantage of our access. Nor do we try to dig deeper into what God is saying. Too often, we forget that text needs context. You can't have text without context. You can't. And what has happened in a lot of Christendom in this world is that many of us as believers have been wiped into unbelief because we just don't know the Word enough. We don't know the Word of God enough. And it can't just be this study of God's Word, of just reading the passages. We need to invite the Holy Spirit into the process to speak to our hearts to understand. And we must also take another step and dig into the Greek and the Hebrew when we read the Word of God. I know that sounds daunting, but let me tell you, there are tools that can help you. One of the tools that has been a blessing in my life is a Bible software called Lagos. And the the Bible software for for Lagos is is very in-depth. You can do all kinds of different plug-and-play, all kinds of different things. There is a, a cost to it, 
But it has been extremely helpful to me as a believer and especially as a pastor and a student in seminary in my doctoral classes. I think we need to come back to a level of depth of study that we have lost. It takes time. It takes effort. And that's why it's difficult. Paul, in this passage in Corinthians, is using a list of vices. He's not pointing out one as worse than the other, but he's giving a very familiar list of vices to the church in Corinth, of which they would have been very familiar with. The Greco-Roman world was much more disgusting than the American world, or even the European world. If you were to dig into the context of the Greco-Roman world, you would see all kinds of crazy wackadoodle things that you would say, how in the world could that actually be accepted? How in the world could that actually be okay? Even by our own cultural standards, some things were off the rails. Now he uses this passage, we see this passage talking about practicing homosexuality. But one of the things that we have to wrestle with is the Greek words that are being utilized. This passage, hermeneutically speaking, in 1 Corinthians, not the others, this passage in 1 Corinthians, hermeneutically, is actually weak to prove homosexuality as a sin. Let me explain. The Greek word translated here as homosexuality is the word malakos. And properly translated, it does not simply mean homosexuality, but rather cantamite. Cantamite, defined in English, is a boy kept for homosexual practices. Now, this is where it gets a little bit mature. Why in the world would translators in the NIV, even in the, in the KJV, the NKJV, the NLT, the ESV, uh, translate it over and over again as practicing homosexuality? One of the reasons is this. Because they decided to develop the scriptures at a third grade le reading level. The Bible, for the majority of, of translations, is purposely put at a third grade reading level. Now, if a third grader was reading through the scripture and saw a boy who was held for the sake of homosexual practice, that would be really intense for a third grader to read. So there was a little bit of a sanitization of it. It is homosexuality, do not be mistaken, but it is a very specific form of homosexuality. In this context, as we see, he is, Paul is talking about the judges, the judges who are being the unrighteous, those who have a list of vices that are, are unseemingly nasty when it comes to having these folks come, come under them for justice. And if you were to study the idea of Greco-Roman world, the elite, philosophers, judges, politicians, senators, all of them, they would have sometimes secretly, sometimes not so secretly, had their followers who were young boys as also saved for relationship with themselves. So here he's saying these judges, these elites have cantamite. These judges, these elites have all of these things happening in their lives. How could you possibly trust them? So this passage, where, where I came face to face with it, with the word malakas, as I was proclaiming this truth of, of the, the idea of homosexuality, pra homo practicing homosexuality as a sin, there was a lot of college students who came and pushed back, obviously. And one of the college students, David himself, came to me and said, you really need to watch this 
video on Netflix that deals with this passage and this word malakas. I watched it. It was obviously very liberal, obviously had a very, very deep agenda of saying that this idea, this issue of practicing homosexuality is not sin. That was the agenda behind it. And I realized that just this passage alone is not strong enough to push through this idea, to understand. And so I was forced, I did not know, as, as a young pastor planting a church on the, college plant, on, on, on the college campus, I did not know the deep roots of Malakas. So I went deeper into study. And that's where we come to the passage in 1 Timothy. When talking, like I said, on college campuses, this came up about pedophilia, and that was the issue they were trying to push back on. Oddly enough, we're seeing that that's trying to be pushed through as an acceptable thing in today's world. But 1 Timothy 1.10 and Romans 1.26-27 through 27 help me firm up my theology. And remember, we're talking about sinful practice. In 1 Timothy, the word used is arsenokoites, which is translated as sodomite, one who lies with men, or homosexuality. Now, if you were to dig into a liberal theologian's view of the word arsenokoites, you would also see that they try to defame it as they, as they have defamed malakas, as they've said, oh, that doesn't deal with the real issue. But arsenokoites, when you look at the Septuagint, this is where we have to understand. I know I'm getting a little bit in the depth of teaching, but this for you and me is vital importance. When we look at this word arsenokoites and we understand what, what is Paul really trying to say, because it was a unique word. Many believe it was unique to Paul himself. Paul was a lot like Shakespeare when he would just make words up. But this word was a purposeful, made-up word that looked at the passages in Leviticus about the practice of homosexuality, and he used this as a compound word to point back to the Septuagint's translation of Leviticus. Now we're getting somewhere and being able to break and defraud the fight back against the word arsenokoites. It was a real hearkening back to the real issue that went all the way back to the Old Testament. Now we know not all of the laws of the Old Testament, the 300 or so odd laws translated into how we live as believers, but scripture consistently points us back to those things that transfer back into our current Christian living. This is one of them. Arsenokoites was a compound word that he was hearkening back to Leviticus. And if you look at the passage in Romans, it is as clear in Greek as it is in English. The Bible is clear, but we need to know the word enough to not be fooled by straw men. Listen, the world loves to put up straw men against biblical truths. The straw men that we see, if you were to look back at the Civil War, what transpired is the North were in a troublesome spot in a moment of war. And they were up on a hill, and they had less men than those who were down below the hill. They had to find a way to win this battle. And what they did was they made straw men. And they put uniforms on the straw men and put them all across the hill. So that when the other army came up, they thought they saw hundreds and hundreds of men. And so they backed off and did not go after 
But had they gone after, had they come close to the straw men, they would have seen, we can push these things over, take this battle, and we will win. The world wants to put straw men on a hill for us as believers. To think that what we believe is wrong. To say, you know, you don't have an argument for this issue. When it comes to the translation of the Greek, sadly, the world knows a little bit more than most believers do. We've got to change that. Kids go to college not having an understanding of malakas or arsenokoites. They don't have a full view of Romans 1, 26 through 27. And when they engage in conversations like this, when professors push back on these Greek words, these kids go, oh, I was wrong. But my friends, it's time to dig deeper. Put in the time so that when straw men come, we can push them over. Because straw man arguments should never bully a believer into unbelief. It should never happen. But too often it does. It's because we live in a world, a Christian society that is biblically illiterate. We need to know the word. We need to dig deeper. We need to understand what God is saying. Remember also, I want us to to get this into our minds and understanding that this is a list of sins in homosexuality. Practicing homosexuality is one among others. Because it can be really easy in our minds to elevate it to a higher place than all other sins. But sin is sin, and all sin leads to death. When we discuss this issue, it should always be with grace through love, embedded with truth. We live in an upside-down kingdom. We cannot fight with the weapons of this world. We are to live differently, show the better kingdom by our words and our lives, bullying people, belittling people, cursing people, defaming people, hating people is not the kingdom way. Now Jesus said this in Matthew ten sixteen. I am sending you out in the world as sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. This is Jesus himself speaking. One of the things I think that happens in our society and in our world is when someone is really loud against us, we dig in our heels. It's human nature. When we force and push and are loud, people will dig in their heels. And I think that the church has done a disservice by being so pushy and so loud where the world has dug in their heels and tries to rub it in our faces, and which makes us a little bit more angry, a little bit more frustrated. And we forget that we're to live in an upside-down kingdom. One of the things that we can do is this. You and I can study sociology. For my dissertation, which I've not yet fully written, we can, I have discovered that statistics show that those who wrestle with practicing this issue among other issues surrounding the LBGTQIA issues that happen in our world, the majority of the students who wrestle with that in their middle school and high school days, their mental health is significantly worse. That's a stat that we can use. 
that's where we can go back to the school board or we can have a conversation, a, a loving, truthful conversation saying what we're purporting, what we're pushing for. Forget about the religious aspect. Look at our children's mental health. Suicide among this group of people is way higher than you could ever imagine. Our kids are dying because they're being taught something that goes antithetical to who they are supposed to be at a young age. As an adult, okay, you know what? They're making their decision. They're not a believer. I can't force them. I can't push them. I can't, I can't even judge them, as Paul said. We're to judge inside. Remember two weeks ago, that's God's world. That's, God, or God's, that's God's job to judge the world. But there are areas where we need to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Matthew is very clear. Take time to study stats. Also, spend time, prayer, listening, grace, love, and wisdom. One of the lies that our society believes as a whole is that to love is to fully agree. Where did that ever come? You know, if you hang out with your children for more than two minutes, you love them, but you're not always going to agree with their decisions. Am I right? Especially our adult kids. We're like, what are you doing? To love is not always to agree. And this is a lie that has, has purported all across. We can love those who are lost without agreeing with them. We can actually spend time with people who are in the world and of the world listening to their heartbreak, their brokenness, their trauma, their issues, and spend time with them. But when, when push comes to shove, we must grace, graciously tell truth. One of the things that God has given me the ability to do in the last couple years here in Indiana is to have relationships with community leaders. I do not agree with a lot of the people I hang out with sometimes. But we have a commonality of grace and listening where I share with those my opinion. They know where I stand. I am a conservative Christian. It does not shock them where I stand on the scriptural reality of this issue. But they still spend time listening because I listen. And because I've studied the Greek and studied the word and have an ability to speak into the intellectual things that pop up, they hear me. When I have relationship with them, I have more weight with what I say. The school board made some decisions that I know many of us disagreed with at the beginning of June, some things that were transpiring, but I was able to write an open letter to the board with my heart poured into it, the stats included. And they didn't do the change that I hoped they would, but they read it because they knew my name. Too often what happens is, as pastors or people, we write really mean, nasty emails without actually having a relationship with people. It is really easy to have a stranger's nasty email and delete it without reading it. It's a lot harder to delete someone who comes alongside you, who befriends you, who does teach the truth, but when they write an email, it's a lot easier to read that email. And I believe that relationship is what we need to do in order to wrestle properly with this. Not letting go of truth, but engaging on a level that's personal, on a level that's real, on a level that's relational. Now, why don't we do that? Because it's not easy. It takes time. 
It takes effort. It's a whole lot easier to write a really loud, mean Facebook post or email than it is to spend six months with someone you disagree with to have weight to your words. We have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, for we are sheep among wolves. We can clearly see that. We can clearly see that. Again, I've digressed a lot, I understand, but I feel passionate about it because we need to see change. But it's up to us to live and speak in a way that is wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Finally, when it comes to this issue, we must see that no sin, no issue, and no struggle are beyond redemption. Paul very clearly at the end of this passage in 1 Corinthians, he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that makes me emotional because I know that's for me. I was washed. I was cleansed. I was justified. But it had nothing to do with myself. I, like all the rest of the world who are stuck in sin, was stuck in sin. If it weren't for Jesus Christ, I would not be washed. I would not be sanctified. I would not be justified. I would be dirty, lost, broken, alone. And so would you. When it comes to issues of cultural sin, things that really, 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 really go against what we believe, we have to have a proper hermeneutic, we have to have a proper context, and we have to have a proper humility remembering who we would be without Jesus Christ. I would be a hot mess. How many of you without Jesus would be a hot mess? I know I would be. It's important for us to remember this. Marion Sword says this, Above all, in the entire dramatic declaration, Paul makes it clear that all this transformation that the Corinthians experience comes as the series of passive verbs that Paul employs show through the work of God's Spirit in Jesus Christ. One of the, the lies of culture today as well about this issue in particular is that it's all about identity. The reason why this gets pushed back so forcefully is because that those who are in the midst of practicing this lifestyle, they believe it's their identity. This is who I am. But friends, our sin does not identify it is Christ and Christ alone that is our identifier. The idea of identification has been lost in the culture as a whole. But Christ is our identity. This, the fact that Paul gives to us, we are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of our God. 
another aspect I want to remind you of is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us are better than any else, anyone else in this world or in this room. None of us. Why, like the Corinthians, do we sometimes wrestle with arrogance as if we are better than? We must find ways to remember and recognize that we're not. That but for the grace of God go I. That is an important reality. One of the things that God has put into my life that has changed the way I interact with people is that the Holy Spirit convicted me once where I look at the world and I would see just sinners who are stuck in their sin who could never be washed. But the Holy Spirit said, what if you saw every person in the world as a potential saint rather than a sinner stuck in their sins? You would treat them differently. You would speak to them differently. You would love them differently. You would teach the truth of the gospel differently. Now, we have no idea. Whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist, we have no idea who's going to be saved. Only, only God knows that. Only God knows that. But we could change our attitude and our heart. Jesus, after John 3.16, said that, you know, that, that the Son came he said that the Son came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if we sought to save the world rather than trying to be loud condemning the world? I think we'd see a lot more people coming to faith in Jesus. It is not about being right. It is about seeing people saved. Amen? Christ uses us as his ambassadors. So point number 10, see everyone as a potential saint who can be saved, not as filthy sinners stuck in their sins. Somewhere along your life, someone came and spoke the truth to you of the gospel. The Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin, drew you close to himself, and you were saved if you are a believer. That person who saw you in your sin, Christ died for us while we were still sinners, saw you as a potential saint and shared the gospel, hoping that you would receive the truth of Jesus Christ. That is our job. We are ambassadors of the King. And so I challenge you to change your perspective. Change the way you see those who live in the world. It will change how you approach any issue even this one. Obviously, one cannot do a, <laughs> a fully exhaust, exhaustive sermon on this issue just in one sermon. But I hope that you've been able to see and ground yourself in truth, have the ability to break down straw men's, but also asking the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to walk in grace and in truth. The world needs grace and truth. Those who are dying, those who are lost, they need Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. I thank you for the word that is convincing and convicting. Father, I do pray that as people, we can be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, as sheep among wolves. 
that we can see change. Use us. In your name. Amen.